Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Beer. Humans love it. Americans love it. Californians love it. Whether you're cracking open a cold one at Dolores Park, clinking pint glasses with your buds at a local brewery, or paying way too much for refreshments at a Giants game. When there's good times to be had, many Californians choose beer. Side effects of beer may include thinking you're stronger than you really are, excessive burping, and ordering nachos. Please drink responsibly and only if you're 21 or over. Hey everyone, this is Bay Curious, the show that answers your questions about the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Olivia Allen Price. And I want to kick off this week's episode by playing you one of my favorite sounds. That's a fresh pint of beer being poured. That kind of dampened, foamy sound is just mm, so good, especially when you hear it in one of the Bay Area's many fine drinking establishments. There's this place um, called Buffalo Bills in Hayward, and I've been going there since, you know, a little after college, like 2000. Bay Curious listener Ricky Chandra enjoys having a pint with friends. In particular, he likes local craft beers. At first, I liked the IPAs, and they started to get a little too heavy for me. So now um, I've been in, more into Pilsners and Kolsch. Uh, and yeah, I think Kolsch has been my, my go-to beer lately. Ricky says when he first started enjoying beer in the early 2000s, he drank the basics. Before, we were just drinking like Budweiser and Coors Light. But then some of his friends started brewing their own beer and getting more curious about different styles. And as their tastes changed, they began trying the wide variety of brews sold in markets around the Bay Area that were produced right here. Something that at the time he hadn't really seen outside of California. Now, as a craft beer aficionado, he wonders. So I heard that uh, the Bay Area is one of the first places to produce craft beer before craft beer even became a thing. Is that true? And if so, how did it start? This week on Bay Curious, we explore how the Bay Area became the epicenter for the modern craft beer explosion. And we'll go inside a successful brewery. That's all just ahead. Stick around. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. We've got producer Amanda Font here today to answer Ricky's question about how craft beer got its start. But first, Amanda, what exactly makes something a craft beer versus just a regular beer? Well, there's sort of two answers. First, there's the official industry definition. According to the Brewers Association, which is a trade group for craft brewers, it comes down to ownership and output. Your brewery can't be more than 25% owned or controlled by a company that is not also a craft brewery. And your annual output must be less than 6 million barrels of beer. Okay, can you give us some context on that? Like, how much really is 6 million barrels? A barrel is 31 gallons, so 6 million of them could fill 380 Olympic-sized swimming pools, which is a lot of beer. For perspective, Bay Curious sponsor Sierra Nevada is one of the largest craft breweries with a nationwide distribution, and their annual output is only 1.2 million barrels. So what's the other thing? The second sort of signifier of a craft brewer isn't official. It's more about the characteristics of the beer itself. How is it made? What kind of creative process did the brewer go through when developing it? Does it utilize new, maybe experimental ingredients or flavors? Like you kind of know a craft beer when you taste it. Totally. I feel like I'm a lot like our question asker, Ricky. In my 20s, I drank a lot of Bud Light, PBR, Natty Bow, shout out Baltimore, all kind of light lagers that taste pretty similar to each other. And the first time I had a craft brew, it really blew my mind. It just had so much flavor. And now I'm always on the lookout for new things to try. Definitely. California has more craft breweries than any other state, around 957. So to answer Ricky's question, is it true that the idea of craft brewing started in the Bay Area? It is true. It's widely accepted that modern American craft brewing started right here in San Francisco at Anchor Brewing. We had people coming to the brewery from all over the world, from all kinds of backgrounds, just beer lovers, beer aficionados. It was absolutely just a buzz. I talked to Dave Burkhart. My title is Anchor Brewery Historian Emeritus, which has nothing to do with merit and simply means that I retired. (laughs) Dave worked at Anchor Brewing for 31 years, starting in 1991. He did a lot of different jobs, everything from being on the design team for their beautiful labels to doing lab work and being a tour guide. Tour guide was a great job, and everybody did it because it was a great way to learn about the brewery. While working as a tour guide, people would ask him history questions that he didn't know the answers to. So he'd ask other people in the company, and they also didn't know. But here I was working at a San Francisco institution that had been around forever, and nobody really knew all that much about the history. So I began delving into it on my own. The result is his book, The Anchor Brewing Story. Which tells the complete history of Anchor Brewing Company from the gold rush all the way to the present day. 
Now, you may have seen Anchor Brewing in the news this year because after 127 years of brewing beer in San Francisco, the company ceased operations and shut its doors at the end of July. It's not necessarily gone forever. There are efforts underway to raise money to help the former union workers at Anchor buy the brewery and reopen it. But currently, the property is for sale for $40 million. What is for certain is that Anchor's influence as the center of the modern craft beer movement can't be underestimated. But it took a long time to get there. The story starts just after the gold rush. The brewery that would become Anchor was first opened as Golden City Brewery in 1871 on Pacific Avenue between Larkin and Hyde in Knob Hill. In 1896, Ernst Baruth and his son-in-law, Otto Schinkel Jr., bought the brewery and changed the name to Anchor. 1896 is what Anchor claims as their official establishment year. As part of the deal, the new owners also got the recipe for the one and only beer that the brewery had been making, what would come to be known as Anchor's Steam, the iconic beer that kept this business open for many decades to come. The question I've probably been asked more times than any in the 31 and a half years that I worked at the brewery was, why is it called steam beer? And I'd like to say that there's one answer and there's one easy answer. There are a few potential reasons, but here's what is probably the most popular theory behind the name. During the gold rush, there were a lot of thirsty miners and a huge demand for beer, particularly lager. The term lager comes from a German word that means to stock or store. Typically, lager beer is made and then stored or lagered either in a cellar or an alpine cave, almost always on ice or at a very cool temperature for a number of months. And that's where it develops its clean, crisp flavors. Well, guess what? Um, Ice and modern refrigeration were not available in California during the gold rush. So the brewers had to figure out a way to make the best lager they could make under those primitive conditions and without ice. The first steps of beer making require steeping your malt in heating water and boiling that mixture. Then you need to cool it down before adding the yeast, because yeast is a living organism, and if it's too hot, it'll die. And that's the magic ingredient that makes your beer alcoholic. But you need to cool it quickly to prevent bacteria growth. So what they did was they pumped it up to the rooftop of the brewery, which was enclosed on all four sides by louvered windows, had a slanted roof so condensation wouldn't drip right back into the beer. The hot mixture would sit in these big, shallow pans so cool air could flow around them. And when hot wort, which is what beer is called before you add yeast to it, met cold air of San Francisco, guess what? You get something that looks like steam wafting from those louvered windows. And so somebody said, well, boy, they must be making steam beer up there. The term steam beer was later trademarked by Anchor, but you can find a similar style of beer sold under the name California Common. And for a long time, that's the only kind of beer Anchor Brewing made. Let's jump ahead to 1965. Anchor Brewing has changed hands several times and is now owned by a guy named Lawrence Steese. And it is not doing very well. They're making two beers, sort of, that classic steam and something that at least looks like a porter. And it wasn't called porter. It was just called steam light and steam dark. And all they did was literally add caramel coloring to the keg as they were filling the keg. It wasn't even in the brew. 
Um, there was no dark malt. There was no nothing. It looked like porter, but it tasted, if you close your eyes, guess what? It was exactly the, exactly the same. The quality of the beer they're churning out is very inconsistent due to sanitation issues like bacteria growth. Local bars are reporting that kegs arrive spoiled, and Anchor Brewing is in deep financial trouble, on the verge of bankruptcy. Then along comes Fritz Maytag. He's a Renaissance man, a very generous man, very caring, uh, loving man, and absolutely one of the brightest people I, I know, sharp as a tack. If the name Maytag sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you've seen it on your washing machine. Fritz is the grandson of the founder of the Maytag Corporation. Or it could be that you've had Maytag blue cheese because Fritz's father started Maytag Dairy Farms. Talk about a family with a diverse business portfolio. In 1965, Fritz Maytag was a 28-year-old entrepreneur looking to branch out in yet another direction from his family's enterprises. He'd attended Stanford and lived in the Bay Area, and when he heard from a local bartender that a legacy business like Anchor was close to shutting its doors, he decided he had to help. So he bought 51% stake in the brewery for $5,100. A little under 50 grand in today's money. And then loaned, promptly had to loan Lawrence Steese about $9,000. Fritz was charmed by the brewery, but also realized that in addition to being America's smallest brewery at the time, it was also the most medieval brewery, as Fritz liked to call it. <laughs> For one thing, the brewery was still using that same method of cooling the wort on the roof of the building that they had been back in the 1890s. They didn't even have refrigeration. It had a refrigerator where you could leave your lunch, you know, but that was about it. This was, this was in 1965, for gosh sakes. Fritz set about taking this medieval brewery and modernizing it, starting with refrigeration and stainless steel tanks, which are much easier to keep clean. The funny thing is, before buying a majority stake in Anchor, Fritz didn't actually know anything about beer. As he started to work there and see the problems with the beer, he saw it as a challenge and saw it as something that he really loved and uh, taught himself all about brewing. Eventually, uh, in 1969, bought out Stees and ended up being 100% owner, although it took him 10 years to turn a profit at the brewery. For the majority of the company's history, Anchor Beer had only been available locally on tap. But in 1971, they began bottling Anchor Steam and branching out style-wise. The first new brew? A porter. A real one this time an all-malt porter made with a black patent or dark malt, as well as the caramel malt and pale malt. Uh, that was in 1972. We started bottling it in 1974. In 1975, they introduced three more beers, Anchor Liberty Ale, Old Foghorn Barley Wine, and the seasonal Anchor Christmas Ale, which started a tradition where each year the recipe and the label on the bottle are just a little different. And each of Anchor's now five different beers was unique in character. They all looked different. They all tasted different. They all smelled different. They all had different labels. But they all felt like they came from Anchor. Experimenting with different styles is a hallmark of craft breweries now. But at the time, it was unusual. Because in the 1970s, American beer was pretty homogenous. Sad to say, virtually all of the beer in America, as anybody knows who was drinking beer back then, uh, will tell you, 
it was all fizzy, light. Because Miller makes it right, every glass of Miller High Life is always refreshing. Yellow, bubbly. Hands, the beer refreshing. Bland. Coors is born high in the Rockies, and the quality never comes Tasteless, down. It's characterless. When you say Budweiser, you've said it all. It's not that any of these styles that Anchor was brewing were brand new. They just weren't commonly available in the U.S. at that time. And that was one of the beauties of what Fritz was doing. It was a what he called a radically traditional idea. It was radical to make a traditional beer in those days. Selling their beer in bottles allowed Anchor to reach a wider market, and people outside the Bay Area started to take notice of these robust, more artfully brewed beers. Some started flocking to the brewery to see how it all worked, because they wanted to do it too. Fritz was open source, before the words open source, and was happy to give everybody that came a tour, tell them uh, all about our beer, you know, promote the idea of what ultimately became known as craft beer. Dave says the term craft beer was just taking off around the time he started working at Anchor in 1991. Before that, people referred to it as microbrewing. Anchor was doing a lot of experimentation with different hops and malts, and that, combined with their modern techniques and the fact that they were seeing renewed success, inspired a lot of new businesses. A couple of those guys were Ken Grossman and Paul Camusi from what became Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Jack McAuliffe of New Albion came to the brewery. Everybody wanted to make that pilgrimage to see, and why not, see how it was done, because the brewery was successful. It was small, but it was successful. And the craft beer scene started to take off and evolve. For example, there's the story about a young couple from Southern California, Natalie and her boyfriend Vinny. I asked him what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? That everybody asks you at that age. And he said, I want to own my own brewery. And I said, well, how do you know this? You're not even old enough to buy beer. And he said, I just do. Natalie brought Vinny to see the Anchor Brewing Tour for his 21st birthday in 1991. Dave gave the tour. Fritz was there that day. I I won't claim to have been inspirational, but uh, Fritz was certainly inspirational. The tour left a big impression on Vinny and on Dave, too. But he wrote me a thank you note, and uh, I saved it for some weird reason. I just got a sense about him that maybe I should just save this note. 30 years later, Vinny comes back for a second tour this time at the invitation of Anchor Brewing, because Vinny and Natalie Chalurzo now run Russian River Brewing, makers of the very popular Pliny the Elder Imperial IPA. Dave whips out this piece of paper, and it's a handwritten letter, just thanking for the visit and whatnot, and I was, I was blown away that, that Dave still had that. So you can think of Anchor Brewing as sort of a parent or grandparent of many of the well-known craft breweries that are around today. Vinny credits Anchor as an early inspiration. Anchor Liberty and Sierra Nevada Pale Ale were two like formidable beers that were in my, still are in my DNA. And he's leveraged that inspiration to great success. Here's a perfect example. Before taking over Russian River, Vinny opened his first brewery called Blind Pig in his hometown of Temecula, California. He was young and just starting out, so he had to buy his brewing equipment secondhand. It was a little old, some of it was plastic, and it was kind of cobbled together. He was worried it might affect the taste of his beer. So I just thought, well, what if we take our IPA recipe and double all the hops and then raise the malt a little bit so then we get a little higher alcohol content? 
in a way almost like kind of hide the flavors because we couldn't afford to fail on the first brew. Granted, if it would have been contaminated, we would have dumped it. But it wasn't. And when they released the beer, it was good. So the next year, they released another double IPA. That's right. Vinny is credited with inventing that extra strong, extra hoppy style known as double IPA. The spirit of innovation among local craft breweries has accelerated in recent decades. New hop varieties are coming out all the time, giving brewers flavors to experiment with that Fritz Maytag could only dream of back in the 60s. I just dry hopped a beer today with a hop that's is a, it's a number, NZ109, and we're the second brewery in the world, I've, I've been told, to use this hop. Vinny and his now wife, Natalie, showed me how it's done at their state-of-the-art brewery in Windsor, California, about 10 miles north of Santa Rosa. So this is what the hops looked like before they went into the Yeah, if you think of uh, Lincoln cooking, you know, the hops would be like your herbs and spices. And so you'd have your base recipe that you can then dramatically alter them by just different hop varieties that you use. The day I visited, they were brewing a big batch of their Happy Hops IPA. As we walked through the brewery, we came across a couple large tubs of spent hops, still warm from being in the brew. We're brewing happy hops today, so this is this could be amarillo. It could be stone fruit. Yeah, smell. Could be a. Smell that? You're gonna love this. The still slightly damp hops smell amazing. A little piney, citrusy, with a note of freshly mown hay. I was struck by just how passionate the people who work in craft beer really are, and how that enthusiasm translates into really good beer. I also got the sense that a lot of these breweries feel a camaraderie with each other. Lagunitas invited all employees and former employees of Anchor Brewing to an Anchor Appreciation Party. When Stone Brewing and Escondido had their second anniversary, they made a double IPA and they actually gave me credit on their, on their label, which was pretty cool of Greg and Steve to do that. It could be that along with a philosophy of creative experimentation, Fritz Maytag's open source style of welcoming brewers to Anchor also set a standard, where rather than cutthroat competition, Brewers respect and cheer on each other's creations because they're all doing something unique. But the craft beer industry is facing some challenges right now. The pandemic hit everyone hard and tastes change over time. Alcoholic seltzers seem to be the hot thing right now. Plus, the market is a little saturated and increasing costs can mean that breweries that were once considered craft now don't technically qualify because they've had to turn to larger business partners. Before it closed, Anchor was sold to Sapporo in 2017, making it no longer a craft brewery. Petaluma-based Lagunitas, another brewery popular for its creative beers, doesn't technically qualify either. Heineken bought a 50% stake in that company in 2015. But maybe rigid qualifications like that don't fully reflect what's at the heart of an industry based on creativity. I define craft brewing as quality quality-driven. And at the end of the day, I'm actually not sure anymore if it matters who owns you or, or whatnot. Historian Dave Burkhart summed it up nicely, too. A craft beer is a distinctive, aesthetically pleasing, alcoholic beverage made from malted grain whose taste, aroma, quality, and consistency reflect the skill, integrity, and creative imagination of its brewer. 
As a fellow beer lover, I'll drink to that. Cheers. 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 That was Bay Curious producer Amanda Font. Big thanks to Ricky Chandra for sending in that question. It's a new month, and that means there's a new voting round up at baycurious.org. Head over to cast your vote for what question you think we should answer next. It only takes a few seconds. Also, there's a new monthly trivia contest question. Hang on at the end of this episode for your chance to win. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco and member-supported KQED. Our show is produced by Amanda Font, Christopher Beale, and me, Olivia Allen-Price. Additional support from Jen Chien, Katie Springer, Cesar Saldana, Maha Sanad, Holly Kernan, and the whole KQED family. Have a great week, everybody. Hi, Big Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 